Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 260. So if you know what to do and you know what you want to do, and for whatever reason, you're not doing it. That's what I define as stuck. If you're okay with what's going on, if you're cool being on the couch for 12 hours watching Bridgerton, like, okay, cool. Like, awesome. I'm not here to tell you that you should do anything else. But if you are stuck, if you are wanting to do a thing and you know you have the ability to do the thing and you have the resources to do the thing and you're not doing the damn thing, that's what I call stuck. That is our guest in this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, professor, author, therapist, speaker, Britt Frank, a trauma specialist who treats people with a unique and powerful set of techniques and approaches, which taken together helps clients to get out of the feeling of being stuck. Now, I'm pretty sure you'll be hearing a lot about Britt Frank in the coming years. Her signal is rapidly rising above the noise, and I was thrilled to get a chance to sit down with her and just nerd out about how hard it is to be a person. And though this interview is supposed to be about her new book, The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward, which takes all that she's learned, both in the theories behind all this as a professor at the University of Kansas and in practice as a professional therapist, what at least half of this interview turned out to be was a wide-ranging conversation chasing down many nested tangents about everything from procrastination to somatic markers to trauma to the multitudes of the self and more. Her book, though, stuck. I feel like it will soon join books like The Body Keeps the Score and Healing the Shame That Binds You and In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts as one of those self-help books that actually does help selves. So, Without any more introduction, here is my conversation with therapist, teacher, speaker, and trauma specialist, Britt Frank. I, with full disclosure, immediately sent this to a family member of the PDF. I was like, hey, this is for an interview I'm doing. I think you would really enjoy this. I've talked a lot about momentum and talked a lot about uh, 
what it takes to uh, just just straight up saying, look, you're not crazy, you're not stupid, you're not lazy, you're a biological organism responding to its environment, and there's top-down, bottom-up things happening in your body because your brain's in your body. And the, that's just from reading a small portion of the book. That's how quickly I, I, I was on board with your message. So awesome. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get do a little bit of the um, thing where we get to know you for a second. And just because I want to do that well, like as a human being, but also I think this is important for the book that you wrote. I'm meeting you now as you are now, and you are this exemplary human being who is a professional, who has your shit together, and uh, you have a cool job, and you're helping people, and you're an intellectual, and all these things, right? It might be surprising for people to learn. This was not always the case. I will lob that up like a little softball and see what you do with it. <laughs> so I did not fun- you know, come out of college fully functional as an adult human with therapy, information, and knowledge. I was a hot mess. And I say that with great <laughs> self-compassion and love, but it's true. I was a master at the art of self-deception. I was a drug addict, a love addict, a relational addict. I had eating disorders. I had clinical depression, borderline personality disorder. My DSM diagnosis list was not short. And so mm. I really had a hard time with this humaning thing. So people were like, well, did you become a therapist because you just love to help people? And I'm not that altruistic. It was more like (laughs) I needed to not die and I needed to figure out how we operate and why we do the things we do. And after I figured some of that out, I just thought it was really cool. So I pivoted out of the advertising world and became a therapist. I just love your story. I'm, I'm over. If you see me doing this, I'm looking at my notes. I, yeah, you said you were, <laughs> I just had something I had pulled out of the book. I was, you said you were the queen of the hot mess express <laughs> <laughs> this, but it's, it's more than just that. Like other, like I think as we were taking, we were talking before we officially started about flea bag stuff uh, and how relatable that is to so many people, but your story goes further than that. I would like to hear just a little bit more about this because it goes, it, it we can start with Vicodin if you want, but we can also get, but I hope we get into this little sidetrack you took inside of a cult. What happened? How did this occur? Where were you? What was around you? How do people get into cults? Tell me more about this. <laughs> so having done the whole drug thing and having done the whole, and my disclaimer with the cult, not all cults are Westboro about, I've never protested funerals of soldiers. I was not drinking Kool-Aid and participating in mass rituals that were causing harm to people. So there are okay, some cool, cults cool. that the primary damage is internal and in a community environment. So I was in a benign, if you will. I mean, I don't think any of them are benign, but that's my disclaimer. Um, On the spectrum there, on the more benign side. Exactly. So I really understand the appeal having been on the inside. So my biggest thing in my early 20s was I don't know who I am. I certainly don't want to take responsibility for my life. I want someone to take care, you know, sort of like that princessy, like, I don't want to do it. I want somebody to take care of me. Somebody else do it. And cult life affords you somebody to tell you, if you do this, think that, read this, don't read that, then you're good. And I could have goodness bestowed upon me without having to deal with anything real. And the idea of bypassing pain in order to achieve some Zen state of goodness, some spiritual ideal was incredibly appealing to me. And so I really, really fell in very quickly to, I was really good at cult life. You know, I'm a rules girl. Tell me what to do and what to think. As long as it's not dealing with my own shit, I'm on board. Anything to escape what was true for me about me. 
and cult life does that. And so it, and it provides the illusion of family and belonging. As long as you do what you're told, you are patted on the head. Good girl. You have your sisters and brothers and you have your moms and your dads and giving that up meant starting from scratch with nothing going, okay, oh crap. Now I have to think, what do I think? What do I believe? What's true for me about me? And what am I willing to do to take ownership over it? Like, crap. I didn't want to do that. So the appeal, you know, we focus in, especially nowadays on the sensationalistic aspects of cult life and how could anybody, I would never, you know, get brainwashed. If you have unaddressed pain, you are going to be subject to being an easy target for brainwashing. And I don't care how smart you are. You know, I went to Duke. I'm not like a stupid, I don't identify as not that there are any stupid people, but I like to think that I had a few, you know, at least intellectual marbles rolling around my head. And I bought it hook line and sinker because I needed to bypass pain. So cult life is very, very skillful at doing that and providing that. And of course it doesn't work and it's not functional, but for a while it worked. That's why I did it. <laughs> it, it's, it, it met some needs and uh, addressed some of your motivations. I, I, I'm going to get into the book and other stuff, but I wanted to jump on a tangent because as you were saying this, it made me think oftentimes it's also, if it's not a cult, you can do very similar things for very similar reasons in bad relationships as well. Am I right or, or am I on the right track here? Just tell me what, tell me. Well, something. having done the cult thing and having been an incredibly toxic relationship, I mean, like the Dateline stuff, like the really crazy fringe stuff, I've been on both sides and it's the same phenomenon. I mean, it manifests in different ways, but it's the same thing. It's if I could be an, I'll name an, I won't speak for any other people who have been in domestically violent relationships, but I will say for me, one really ugly truth I had to contend with. Now, abuse is never the fault of the person being abused ever, ever, ever. That's my disclaimer. However, what a marvelous way I could avoid my own reality by focusing on how bad my partner was. And that one was a really hard pill to swallow because I was a victim. And it's true. I was victimized in a variety of ways. However, I largely benefited from that because I, as long as I was in that relationship, I never had to deal with what was true about me and eek, that's a hard sell. So wow. there's a degree to I'm which that's true with cult life. And that's true with toxic relationships with the caveat that abuse is never the fault of the abused and no one ever asks for it and you don't deserve it. All of that. I'm just saying for me, I used cult life. I used drugs and I used bad relationships to avoid just dealing with my own unintegrated pain, my own subconscious, my own shadow, whatever you want to call it, my own shit. And so that doesn't work. And so I stopped doing that. Okay. We'll get into how we can learn from your, what you've done, but I also feel like this is the point where we, we should, for the people listening, offer some bona fides or your incredible CV or whatever we're going to do here. I want to just say, why should we trust you at this point? Which is, what are you doing now? What did you do? Hence, what is your profession? What are you up to? <laughs> well, you shouldn't trust me. Take my information and verify it with all the other information and then make a decision whether or not my information is applicable to you. I certainly don't okay. claim to have, you know, here's a solution for everybody in every context. So after I got my shit together, so to speak, um, I became licensed as a licensed specialist clinical social worker. I did a three-year postgraduate training in a trauma modality called somatic experiencing, which is just a very fancy way of saying our minds live in brains. We live in biological organisms. And if you know we don't know that, our lives are going to 
be difficult and we won't know why. And then I also have a three-year training in internal family systems, which is Dr. Richard Schwartz's model of, you know, the multiplicity of the personality, single most powerful tool I've ever found for getting out of whatever dilemma you find yourself in. So, you know, and I've, you know, I've lived it. So I have a shiny resume and a really dirty history. So those two <laughs> together make me, I like to think, you know, perhaps I have something of value to share with people. Yeah, yeah. If I was figuring out who we were going to put on the spaceship to go somewhere, or a zombie apocalypse survival squad, like <laughs> all these things are are, are are checking boxes for me. So, and I, I'm assuming you have clients now. I'm just, <laughs> this part of your life. Yes, I have a very full, very busy private practice. Um, I've taught at the University of Kansas. I do speaking. I do teaching. All of that stuff. So I'm busy these days, which is fun. Awesome. Okay, so with all of that, so that I, I. I uh, I have all these notes here. I don't know what how much we'll get to, but the point is you wrote a book and this book is a combination of all of your experience and then a lot of uh, prescriptive advice as to how it can be applied if you are if all you have right now is a book. And the and most of the a lot of the good things in my life came from a book that shattered what I was thinking or gave me a tool that I didn't know I needed. And uh, I felt that going through your book and there's something you had just said that you say in the beginning, and I would like to just start here. You said that uh, in the book, you say mental health is not a mental process. It's a physical process. And uh, for many of us, our scariest symptoms are not mental illnesses. I'm reading straight from the book. They're bodily responses. I am familiar with uh, The Body Keeps the Score, and I'm familiar with the somatic marker world of psychology stuff and the Antonio Damasio stuff that kind of gets into that thing. And I'm a little familiar with borderline and bipolar, and uh, I've known people who, who've suffered for all sorts of these things. I'm interested in what you have to say as this is sort of a starting point and a way to get into the topic. So, and, I'm, and again, I have to put lots of disclaimers and lots of caveats on this because it's not universal. Mental illness is very real. And I'm certainly not saying whether whatever you call it, our pain is real, mental illness is real. However, largely what the mental health world calls pathology or calls a disease is a functional and a reasonable response to either a real threat, an imagined threat, or a pain point from the past. So if you don't know that you have a nervous system, if you don't know that your brain has a fight, a flight, and a freeze mechanism, you're not going to know that what looks like borderline personality, what looks like agoraphobia, what looks like panic disorder is a reasonable brain response to a real or imagined threat. And that's incredible good news. The mental illness thing should really be an outlier, not the no 40 million Americans are diagnosed with mental illnesses because most therapists are not trained in the brain. This was horrifying to me to discover in grad school. You can become fully operational as a independently licensed therapist and never once learn about, hey, you have an amygdala and you have a central nervous system and it's not required. It is not required because the research is always about a decade and a half behind the curve. So by the time the trauma research catches up, these models, these well outdated, antiquated models of just think your way out of your issues and just think your way out of stuck. And it's not true. Mental health has very little to do with your mind and very much to do with what your autonomic nervous system is doing or not doing in response to the environment. So what looks like depression, and again, the symptoms are real. The pain point is real. Our, you know, The debilitating impact of all this stuff is real, but it's not an illness. 
often what we call pathology are our brains doing exactly what the brains were designed to do. That doesn't mean you should stay there. doesn't mean you should be resigned to it, but it does help to know, hey, your brain's doing what a brain's supposed to do, which is survive, which is conserve energy, which is try to get to autopilot, which is, you know, habits. And let's like use as little resources as possible to keep you alive. Really good news to know you don't have to assume I'm just disease, disordered, or sick. This very much overlaps with a lot of what I say when it comes to biases and fallacies, heuristics, and things that these are, you know, confirmation bias being the one that most people are, are familiar with. This That is an adaptive mechanism. That There's a reason that we have it because uh, for millions of years, it was useful in certain contexts to confirm your anxiety might actually be, uh, like if you're in a tent and you hear a, a horrible sound outside and you go, hmm. I feel bodily, viscerally anxious and bad. I should take my flashlight and go confirm that this is a justifiable response to the situation I'm in. And then we go looking for confirmation of that hypothesis. You do that on Google for whatever thing, and we call it confirmation bias, and it's very intellectual and very abstract. But in the context in which it evolved, it's totally ad adaptive. And I can totally see this being similar to what we were talking about in that a lot of these responses that get certain labels throughout time, especially the ones we address with talking cures only, are ones that are something that brains and bodies do trying to just not get eaten or to get food so that you don't starve or to find a mate or determine if somebody is an ally or an enemy. All these things, right? And it, in these bizarre contexts in which we live, which are this very rapidly changing cultural, social, technological, epistemologic environments that we find ourselves in, those responses don't lock and key very well to the world in which we find ourselves. And then all of a sudden I'm in therapy. <laughs> and it's so true. And it works on both ways. You know, the confirmation bias, people are very, very convinced. I must be lazy. I hear this all day from people. I'm just crazy. This is just who I am. And this is just who I am is biologically inaccurate because what we know about neuroplasticity is the brain can change. So no, you don't get to say this is just who I am. So knowing that our brains have these automatic survival responses is good news in that, yay, we can change, but it's incredibly threatening because it requires us to own like, I can't just say, oh, I loved having my DSM diagnosis. I had access to a community of like-minded people. I could lead with, I'm borderline. And so this is what this means. And this is who I am. But once I learned that I had actually the agency to change it, well, crap. Now, now it's up to me to say yes to what is very unpleasant work. You know, the two guarantees with any type of mental health or motivation or change process, one, it's going to suck. It's going to be awful. And two, it'll be absolutely worth it. But it does require us to say yes. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited 
how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull 
your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our interview with Britt Frank. I'm wondering, and, and I'll swear I'll ask a book question after this question, which is, I bet this is a, a, a pitfall of therapy, isn't it? it on, from the side of the therapist, that the danger probably of diagnosis or even identifying anything is we're very prone as these social primate beings to glom on to identity. Like, oh, you've given me something to identify as. And then with the power we have now of very quickly forming communities around anything, once you have identified as anything, it's very easy to sort of take that on as your primary identity and find like-minded others and then just and not want to change out of it or not feel compelled to, not be motivated to, because you're getting so many good brain juices from the feeling of being identified, finally having some sort of core foundation to build upon and, and, and ingratiate yourself with others and validate and move. Am I in the right headspace there? You're exactly on the right space. And, you know, the addiction recovery world has that. Once you identify that I am an addict, there are some serious issues. One of which being it requires, this is my identity. This is my disease. And in order to participate in the community, I need to identify as such. But you're so right. You know, if this is my issue, there's an entire community. There's merch. There's gear. There's snacks. There's a lot of stuff clustered around the here's my issue. Because who am I if I let go of this identity? Then it's on to me to actually self-actualize. Then it's on me to make choices, to introspect, to figure out what are my values? What do I want? What are my desires? Oh my God, what a nightmare. And what the mental, I mean, really what the mental health world calls a diagnosis is usually almost always, I won't say always, but often those are symptoms of the problem. They're not the problem itself. So if you say, and again, I take psych meds and I've had clinical depression. I get it. You know, take the meds. Meds are great. But if I say my problem is depression, no, it's not. Depression is my symptom that is pointing toward an unmet need or an untended to injury or whatever. And so when we call our symptoms, the problem, we get stuck there. And yeah, we set up camp and we build monuments to our issues. And again, I get the appeal when you're lost in the abyss, having something to cling on to is reasonable and it makes sense and it's functional, but it's not a good place to set up camp forever. You know, take a break there, grab a snack, drink some water, and then let's get moving on. So let me use that as a natural a segue. You use the word stuck and that's what this book is called. And it's a different, all sorts of different kinds of stuck. I like that you open up with like, okay, I finally got the kids to bed. I finally got everything settled. Uh, now it would be a good time to enter whatever you want there. Read that book I said I was going to read. Study that thing I'm supposed to study. Do those exercises I said I would do. Make a to-do list. Or go through the Netflix menu for 45 minutes and then watch a, watch something for 15 minutes and fall asleep. That is one way 
that people experience this, I think, universally. And then there are all these other much more magnified things that we've been alluding to. Let's just start there. What do you, how are you defining this concept of being stuck and why does it happen? So stuck's a continuum, right? We don't all experience our stuckness to the same degree, but I define stuck as, are you making choices in the direction that you want to be? Are you doing with the information you have what you want to be doing? Most of the time, it's not a lack of information that's keeping us, you know, immobile, like immobilized. There's something else going on. We all know what we should do. We should go for a run. We should drink the water. We should power down our screens, you know, but we don't. So if you know what to do and you know what you want to do, and for whatever reason, you're not doing it, that's what I define as stuck. If you're okay with what's going on, if you're cool being on the couch for 12 hours watching Bridgerton, like, okay, cool. Like, awesome. I'm not here to tell you that you should do anything else. But if you are stuck, quote, if you are wanting to do a thing and you know you have the ability to do the thing and you have the resources to do the thing and you're not doing the damn thing, that's what I call stuck. Okay. Good definition. It's not necessarily this sort of thing that, you know, you look back on a a year of inactivity toward your goals and you go, what was I doing? It's also, there's a job you know you don't want to have anymore, that you want something else and it, but you, you just don't move. You don't do it. I, I remember being in that position for years. This also happens in relationships. This happens in many different domains. Oftentimes when you meet up with someone, especially I've noticed this uh, in this bizarre waning phase of the pandemic, when you catch up with friends, the thing that people m- are often want to talk about is I want to move forward in this way. And the pandemic made me realize that, but oh no, I think I'm going to snap right back into it. So please help us. Why can't we do, what is it that's keeping us stuck? What, like just broadly, we can get more specific in a minute, but broadly speaking, like what is the nature of this dark momentum? (laughs) So if this answer assumes that you are in a safe enough environment and you have your basic needs met and you have access to resources, you know, if you're in, if you're under oppression, if you're in a war-torn country, this information does not apply. Why do we get stuck? We are experts at lying to ourselves about ourselves. New Year's resolutions are the best example of this. Every January 1st, everyone is, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Great. Why didn't you do it last year? What happened last year? Right? There are benefits to staying in shitty jobs, in bad relationships. There is a benefit to even the most suboptimal behavior or we wouldn't do it. But it's so gross to say, like, it's really gross to say, I'm going to stay in this crappy job because to leave means now I have to risk my image. Now my relationships are going to have to change. Now I'm going to have to expend more energy. Now I'm going to have to risk financial resources. It's really shameful to say I stayed in a domestically violent situation because I didn't want to deal with my own crap. That's a horrifying thing to have to contend with. But it's so much easier to just go straight through by doing this and saying it than avoiding it. So you can obfuscate and you can lie and minimize and deny and reduce and avoid, but ultimately we get stuck because we're not being honest with ourselves about ourselves. Wow. That's, it feels so much like, like two different flavors of reputation management, like my managing my concept of myself for others and also managing my concept of myself for me. It's been top of mind for me lately about this episode we did about uh, narcissism or vulnerable narcissists and how much they curate their identity, which is something everybody does, but they do it to a, such an extreme level that they hurt others. But reputation management is a top of mind thing. I It really does suck. You're right. This is gross. This is a gross thing to think about ourselves. I don't want to think that I'm, I do things because I don't want to be looked upon as a person who did another thing. That's 
gross. Like I think I thought it was better than that. <laughs> and that's the binary, right? That's the good, bad binary that gets us all in trouble. That if I have these horrible thoughts, mm. I'm a horrible person. And we're taught from a very early age to divide the world into the good guys and the bad guys. That's why I love the multiplicity of the mind model, you know, of looking at the human experience. You're as every complex organism is made of multiple parts. A tree has branches and leaves and bark and roots. Why do we think that we have one aspect of our personality that's the personality? It's called the monomind theory. Why do we, every complex organism is made of multiple parts, including our psyche? There is a part of me who's a total piece of shit. There is a part of me who has these feelings. There's a part of me who's judgmental, but that doesn't mean I'm bad. It just means I am whole. You can, we focus on goodness at the expense of wholeness. And anytime you focus on goodness at the expense of wholeness, you're going to get stuck somewhere. So it needs to be okay that we are complex beings that are capable of the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. But the no, I would never do that. Clutches at pearls. I would never think that. I would never say that. Like, that's not true. We all have the full spectrum of human lightness and human darkness. And to avoid that or deny it is going to create a whole mess of symptoms and behaviors and habits. So let's just own it. We're messy. We're complex. And there's no such thing as a good person. There are whole people. Yeah. Do I contradict myself? Sure. I contain multitudes. Walt Whitman. Yes. Okay. Then um, I'm looking at some of this material I have in the notes and I, and I, I have too many questions. To, I don't even know where to jump in from here, but I feel like we should like start telling people some things that they could maybe do. Before I get into a lot of stuff, there is a word that I want to talk about that I've never talked about on this show and I've always wanted to make a show about it. Procrastination. This is a, it's a, so it's such a dirty word. I almost couldn't say it out loud. What is this thing? Why, why do we do this? Mm-hmm. I want to know from like a scientific perspective, why do we do this? And why do we do it even after we know that's what we're doing and it's not working for us? And I hate that word. I, I'm such, I'm a bit, you know, language is powerful. Language matters. The words that we use to describe our experiences have a large part in shaping them. Procrastination is just a shamey word that doesn't actually, like, what does it mean? You're not doing the thing that you want to do that you know you should do. Okay. What is actually happening in your brain when you're quote procrastinating? It's a fear. And again, I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying this is an excuse for procrastinating, but it does help to explain it. Procrastination is a fear response for whatever reason, conscious, unconscious, logic, illogical, whatever. Your brain thinks if you do the thing, something bad will happen or you'll you know, be tired or you'll be in pain. Working out is a great example of this. You know, I have to really work with my system because going to the gym hurts. It's not pleasant. And if my system doesn't want to be in pain, it's not going to let me go. So it's really important to know that we procrastinate, not because we're sabotaging ourselves, but it's a suboptimal effort at self-protection from a variety of things. And you know, you don't have to get lost in the analysis. Like sometimes things aren't that deep. It's like, I don't want to go because I don't want to expend the effort. Like, cool. So, but if you're noticing a habitual pattern of not doing the things you want to do, your brain is either going to be stuck in a shutdown response, AKA freeze, AKA dorsal vagal shutdown, call it what you will, or it's going to be stuck in fight or flight where it's like so amped and you're wired and you're doing a thousand things except the thing you know you're supposed to be doing. That's where every closet in the house gets cleaned, but you don't answer that email that you've been putting off answering. We procrastinate because we're afraid and we get stuck there because we're not honest. I'll get to it tomorrow. It's like, no, you won't. Like, 
You won't. So let's just start with what's true. I don't want to change because change is hard. I'm actually getting more out of being stuck than I would out of changing. And as long as the cost of change is, you know, too great, we're not going to do it until the cost benefit ratio gets adjusted. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. But I ask people like a good therapy assignment, tell yourself at the end of the day to write down what are 10 lies that you told either to yourself or to other people. And it's not a shame thing. It's not like, Oh my God, I'm such a terrible person. It's like, you can only be dishonest. You can only be fully honest so many days in a row before you're going to get sick and tired of your own crap. But it's when we soften it and we shine it up. It's like, don't spit shine this stuff. At the end of the day, what are 10 lies you told? We all do it, myself included. And as soon as we can start becoming honest with ourselves about ourselves. So all of that to say procrastination is an automatic fear response in the brain. We can choose to accept that and just be like, this is who I am and this is how my brain is. Or we can say we're biological organisms. There are ways of working with the fight, flight, freeze response. And here's the kicker. Here's the question. Am I willing to do the work? that it's going to take to make a change? Yes or no? If the answer is no, fine. Ask again tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow will be a yes. <laughs> Thank you for the way out there. At the end. I, uh, I am with you. I, I, I commiserate with, the, with, with you and everyone else who's been in this spot. Let's get into some things. Something that you, uh, there's a couple of nice moments in the book where you were like, hey, probably what you're thinking about this is not accurate. One is motivation. You just have a chapter title, which is just the myth of motivation. What is the myth of motivation? So the myth of motivation is that it's a purely mindset issue. And I see a lot, and you don't have to be in therapy to work this stuff out, but I see it every day. I, you know, I'm doing the affirmations. I'm telling myself that I'm doing the Stuart Smalley thing in the mirror. I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone <laughs> people like me. Motivation is a mindset issue, but that's secondary. First and foremost, motivation is a physiological issue. If your nervous system is in a survival response, fight, flight, or freeze, you're not going to be able to do your thing no matter how many affirmations you chant, no, how, no matter how many workbooks that you try to do. And so that you said earlier, top down, bottom up. Top down is where we use our cognitive and our thinking and our you know rational brains to problem solve, but we have bodies. And if we don't know that motivation is first physiological and cognitive seconds, we're going to miss out on a whole bunch of stuff that's really important for getting... There's no such thing as an unmotivated person. Our brains are always motivated and they're either motivated by doing what we want to do or surviving a real or perceived threat or anticipating an energy need or you know trying to preserve homeostasis. So there's no such thing as an unmotivated person. The question is, are you motivated by fear or are you motivated by choice? And if you're motivated by fear... We can work with that, but it helps to name it. To say, I'm just so lazy is a misnomer. It's not true. It's not accurate. I dig this. Uh, I, in, in lectures, I often uh, open up by talking about, when I talk about motivated reasoning, I say something similar. I'm like, I, this is kind of weird that we have a term for this because all reasoning is motivated. And it, it's, it's similar. Like, we're, this is how, you know, we're organisms. This is how that works. You have another term. I just want you to define this, and then we can get into some, like, step one, step two stuff. I just think it's neat. What is, what is shadow intelligence? and also, in a parenthetical, your parenthetical, you need the parts of yourself that you hate. Okay, jump in there, please. <laughs> okay, so shadow intelligence, which is my favorite thing. You know, Carl Jung said, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our lives and we will call it fate. So, <laughs> so the shadow sounds, I know, it's not so good. I wish I'd come up with that. It's just brilliant. So in nature, how are shadows formed? Shadows are formed when light is blocked. Okay. 
psychological shadows are formed when our awareness is blocked. So if we're in denial about something, if we're not honest with something for whatever reason, so it's not this mystical woo-woo kind of thing, like the shadow, what is the shadow? Shadow intelligence is, are you in touch with all aspects of your personality, including the ones that you are trying to hide or repress or deny, you know, intelligence quotient measures your, you know, academic kind of intelligence, emotional intelligence is, you know, how in touch with your emotions are you? But if you don't have shadow intelligence, you're going to largely continue out of habit and have no idea why. And again, it's because we don't want to be bad people. We want to be good people. But if we can take that off the table, now we're free to be complete people, which means once you are aware of your shadows, you're no longer ruled by them. I'm taking, I'm taking an actual pin on paper note. Uh, I have a chalkboard in, in my hallway that I, uh, I painted chalk, something with chalkboard paint. And whenever there's something that just like gets me, I try to put it up there and look at it for a couple of weeks until I memorize it. This is the one I want to memorize right now. Cause it's so, it's so relatable in the sense that when I talk about, uh, biases and stuff, I usually try to, I usually go into the introspection illusion and, uh, the antecedents of our thoughts, feelings, behavior are often very, uh, are not available to us, not articulate. They haven't been articulated. Uh, but what we will often do is fashion some sort of narrative to explain those things, which will position us as a heroic figure who does a lot of good stuff. It's very close to the, to the, uh, Jungian concept that you just spoke about, which is when you have things that are unconscious, uh, and they have not been made conscious, they have not been articulated and they continue to drive all sorts of aspects of your life. It starts to feel like fate. It starts to feel like these are the lottery numbers that I pulled. This is the the dice roll that I get, was given. And that frame of thinking can keep you from doing just about all the things that you need to be doing right now. At least that's my perspective on it. So I love that you have a chapter all about this. I like this term. I love when you shrink something down to one simple term so we can talk about it without having to say everything we just said to each other. And we can just move, use that as a building block for a more complex idea. Shadow <laughs> intelligence. I dig it. Okay, I'm going to run out of time if I don't uh, actually ask you the things that I know that if anyone's listening to this and they've been with us for the, so far, they're going to say, okay, great, what do I do? So maybe a step one and a step two. What do you recommend to someone who feels stuck in any which way, shape, or form? What would you recommend as sort of a step one? So I have three steps. Here are three easy Let's steps go. to getting unstuck. Okay. okay. So step one, start with the assumption that your behavior makes sense. You don't need to know why. You don't have to go digging for where did your dad look at you with a mean look and now this is why you can't return phone. Like whatever, it doesn't matter. Just assume there's a reason for this and it's not that you're lazy and it can be changed. If we start with the assumption, step one, whatever my thing is, I can change because we take ourselves out of the game if we don't do that first. You know, uh, this is who I am. Okay, well, you're out. You know, this is just how I'm wired. Well, now you're stuck. Step one, this is fixable or changeable. I'm not broken. I'm not hopelessly blah, blah, blah. Like step one, I can change this. Step two is, okay, what is the benefit of this behavior? What is the benefit? What am I getting out of it? What am I doing? Like, there's a benefit to it. And if you're not sure what the benefit is, then just assume there is one. And then step three is what am I willing to do today? Not where do I want to get to? Not what's my end goal? Just of all of the options available to me, what am I willing to do today? So step one, this makes sense in context. You know, hell if I know why, but it's a thing. Step two, is there a benefit to this that I'm willing to identify? And step three, what am I willing to do today? That's a, t it's so, it was like horrifying after so many years of school that it can be that simple, but it actually can be that yeah. simple. 
What am I willing to do? And then start with what's easy. We get so hung up. Like, they're, like you know, I want to make this huge change in this really difficult area where I'm completely unresourced. Okay, cool. Well, how about over there where there's some low-hanging fruit? So if you're stuck in an area, go somewhere else and get some momentum going in a different area. You know, you can't change, we're systems. You can't change one part of a system without the entire thing changing. So if you're stuck in one area, then pivot to something easy. Don't discount it just because it's easy for you. Like get a win under your belt. Once you get one win over there, this hairball starts to loosen up a little bit. And so you can keep beating your head against the wall, but where can you get some sort of change going stuck turns into unstuck. The second we say yes to anything, to anything. That is good stuff. Um, I'm also thinking about like, I I'm prone to doing this where I'm like, I just learned some cool stuff. I wrote it all down. These are quotes that I would like that if I was the kind of person that would put it on Facebook in a meme format, I would do it, but let's get even more practical. Okay. Someone just heard this. They're like, I hear you. Okay. I'm feeling motivated to do this now. I'm feeling some sort of things happening and, and my anxiety barnacles are starting to loosen up on, on my ship. I don't know what metaphor to use properly here, but should this be something I write down in a journal? Should this be something I put on some sort of vision board? Should I be doing some sort of, what? what is the practical thing I should be doing with my behavior to get from step one to two to three? And all of those tools, vision boarding and all of that is helpful, but it's, it can be a lot. So let's just start with what are 10 options available to you right now? What are 10 people, places, or things that you have at your disposal right now to help you in the direction you want to go? Just write bullet, 10, 10 things. Doesn't mean you have to do all of them. Just what are the 10 things? Of those 10, pick one. What can you say yes to? You don't need to go into why am I like this or where did it come from or how do I feel about that? I'm a therapist saying, forget your feelings for a second. What are 10 choices available to you? And what's one thing you're going to say yes to today? No matter how small and don't minimize a microscopic yes is still a yes. And stuck turns into unstuck the second you say yes to anything. So write down 10 choices, pick one. And at the end of the day, you can do a lie list and ask yourself, what are 10 lies I told to myself or to other people? And then I love this from the business world, do a cost benefit analysis, you know, just two columns, cost benefit, whatever the behavior is, smoking, drinking, watching all of the internet, whatever, what is the cost to my relationships, to my finances, to my health, and what are the benefits? And if you can start there, we can start that honesty thing. It's really hard to be honest with yourself day in and day out and not find the willingness to make a change. It's the lying to ourselves about ourselves that really render us inert. Okay, so something that you, whenever I talk to someone who has a something that has a lot of prescriptive advice in it, I often I used to make the mistake of staying in that space and never going on the other side of it, which I think is very useful. Um, what are some things you shouldn't be doing in these in this sort of step one, two, three thing? What are some sort of if we want to make a to don't list, what are we going to put in that list? The number one to don't list is don't shame yourself. Doesn't mean you should justify if you're acting like an asshole, but if you shame yourself, you're going to stay stuck. If shaming ourselves worked, it would have worked by now. So just from an energy conservation point of view, don't beat yourself up. Let's just start with what's true. Okay, fine. This is what's true for you. Cool. Then what are we going to do? So don't shame yourself. Don't beat yourself up. The second to don't is don't ask why. Why is a really fun, interesting question, but you don't walk up to a burning building and ask, why is it on fire? You put the damn fire out. You get the people out of the building. We'll figure out why later, but most people lead with the why. Why am I doing this? And why am I feeling this? It doesn't matter right now. You're on fire. So let's put the fire out. So don't ask why, ask what. 
instead of why am I feeling this, ask what are my resources and of those, what am I willing to say yes to? So if you turn your why into a what, that's going to be a lot more useful than spinning around. And again, analysis is great. I love it. I love digging into the abysses of the human experience. But if you're trying to get unstuck, don't ask why, ask what and ask who. So that's another to don't. Don't shame yourself and don't ask why and don't assume that you have all the answers. Don't assume that your story of brokenness, laziness, and lack of motivation is true. So like there's information that will help you just, just cause you don't have it right now. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So don't assume that you have the answer to why you suck. It's not, it's not that you suck. You're not lazy. You're not crazy. You're not unmotivated. So don't assume that you can label yourself accurately. That's really good. I don't even know. I like, I thought I was going to follow up with something uh, clever, but I'm like, no, that was just good. Just let it stay. Just let it, just let it stay there. In space. <laughs> uh, there's this term that you have here called brain indigestion. And there's a word inside mm-hmm. uh, the notes here I have that has a big old bold print for myself, trauma. I know we've talked about it a little bit. It just comes up a lot in modern discourse, whether it's on TikTok or YouTube or Reddit or whatever. There's a lot of people talking about trauma. And I know Gen Z is very open to discussing this. I worry, of course, as always, having uh, been a journalist that covered these topics for so long, when something does rise into the public consciousness like that, when its signal gets above the noise, there's a danger of it getting very poorly articulated, very poorly defined, and people going off on tangents that are going to end up being wasted their time. You're an expert on this topic, and this is very particularly important for the type of thing we're talking about right now. What should we be, how should we be talking about trauma? How important is that in this discussion? And what can we do with our knowledge of this that will be applicable to positive outcomes? So it's wild to me that trauma has become trendy. It's like, when did trauma, I mean, really trauma is so hot right now. Everyone has it. Everyone's talking about it. And the word trauma has sort of become this mushy, nebulous. What does that actually mean? So again, using accurate language will help us to change the things we want to change. What is trauma? It doesn't mean you're abused. It doesn't mean something horrible happened to you. Trauma essentially is brain indigestion and brain indigestion, just like physical if I eat, you know, contaminated food, I'm probably going to puke, but I could also get a stomach ache from eating the same apple that I've eaten every single day. And digestion is an automatic process. I don't know why today my food exceeded my digestion's ability to metabolize and process. It doesn't matter. So trauma if you're going to talk about what it is, is brain indigestion. It's not what happened to you. It's, is your brain metabolizing your experience or is it getting stuck on something and creating a symptom? So I love the idea of brain indigestion because it makes it so much less big and scary. And it also makes it applicable to the degree that you're human. You're going to have brain indigestion at some point. doesn't mean everyone is going to have high level capital T trauma, but to be human is to, at some level, to some degree, experience brain indigestion. So let's just call it that. So then we can deal with it versus my trauma is my excuse or my trauma is now my identity. And what we know about trauma is that it's not an illness. It's not a disease and it's not a disorder. It's a reasonable response to injury or threat and it can heal. 
We know that. So let's just not use the T word anymore because it doesn't mean anything. We've used, I've ends my caveat. I would much rather us be talking too much about trauma than not at all, because it used to be that no one used that word, but now everyone's using that word. Call it brain indigestion because functionally that's what it is. Okay. That's exactly what I wanted. You gave me exactly what I was hoping you'd give me. The, the, uh, <laughs> so here's something, here's my last question. What do you hope people get out of this book? Like, what was your intention writing it? And what do you hope people get out of it? So this was the book I wish I had had when I was early in my recovery. You know, it's not like, here's Britt Frank's opinion on life. I've synthesized all of the research that I've found, all of the tools that have been helpful to me. I read a bajillion self-help books and I cherry-picked what I think is the most useful, helpful, applicable information. So that was my intention with writing the book was, here's my show and tell. So you don't have to read all of the books. It's sort of a Cliff's Notes guide to getting yourself moving. It's not the deep dive, but it will get you started. So that was my intention. This isn't supposed to be the deep dive. Let's analyze everything. It's here's just enough information so you can start to pick up some momentum and we'll ask the why questions later. And my hope with this book really is that people like you don't need advanced training in traumatology. You don't need to spend 10 years in therapy. Healing isn't easy and changing isn't easy. It's not. It's complex and our pain is complex, but the process is not rocket science. It's just like driving a car. You don't need to be an auto mechanic to drive a car. You know enough. Here's the gas. Here's the brake. This is what I need to know. So with our brains, you don't need advanced training to know just enough. About, it's like driver's ed for your brain. That's what I hope the book does is it's driver's ed for your brain. So, you know, you can get going. Oh, you know, I really appreciate, I communicate with metaphors and analogies and that's how I think anything. Like if you're trying to show me a math problem, I'm like, eh. and then when you say, well, it's kind of like, if you think about it, it's like the wheels of a, of a wagon, whenever it goes over a muddy stump, I'm like, oh, now I get it. So you're doing that so well with explaining these topics extemporaneously and you do that in the book. And so if anyone is getting the same thing I'm getting from it, from hearing this conversation, that's what the book's like. And that's the way you will be able to understand these topics through reading it. I recommend you get it. That's my full on super endorsement by this book. How do people find you if they want to keep up with what you're doing? If somebody's like, wow, I like what's going on here. How do they find you? How do they keep up with you? And what are you up to in the world after this book? So you can find me on Instagram where I spend way too much time. So it's just my name at Britt Frank. Um, you can find more about the book at scienceisduck.com and you can buy the books wherever books are sold. So, all right. All right. Oh my God. This was such an immense pleasure. Yeah. This was really fun. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode or any episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, Amazon, Audible, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Check it out on Facebook, where there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people checking out what's happening and you are not so smart on Facebook. And if you'd like to support this show, this operation, help make it better, the really the best way is just share it. Share it with people on your social media. Tell someone in person, hey, I like this podcast, this particular episode, taught me this, that, and the other. If you'd like to go further than that, though, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters, t-shirts, sign books, and other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. 
This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. All right. Also, yeah, buy How Minds Change. That's my book. All right. See you soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.